Hey, this is Aaron Carnes. We started this podcast in 2021 to promote my book, In Defense of Ska. Since then, the podcast has grown into its own thing. I've been working on an expanded second edition. I interviewed new people, edited every chapter, and there's a new final chapter, 30,000 new words. The expanded second edition of In Defense of Ska will be released on October 29th, 2024. Can you do something for me? Pre-order it right now at clashbooks.com under the books tab. The more copies it sells in advance, the more it'll get people to support ska music. Thanks. Over the past couple of decades, Jay Vance, or J-Bot, has toured the country countless times with one of the most amazing bands ever, Captured by Robots, a band consisting of just him and robots that he built himself. The music has changed over the years, but the show has been consistently mind-blowing and includes a crazy backstory of robots enslaving Jay and forcing him to cart them around the world. But before Jay was captured by these human-hating robots, he played bass in two major ska bands. First was Blue Meanies, a group he started in Carbondale, Illinois in 1989. After he quit the band, he joined Skank and Pickle for a short while. We talk about all of it and find out if he prefers human or robot bandmates. Jay hates Ska. (laughs) (laughs) But if anybody has a right to hate Ska, it's Jay. A little while back, right after we interviewed Jay, I posted on Twitter that we had interviewed a Ska hater. And everybody (laughs) was just, they had all kinds of guesses. And nobody guessed Jay because... They assumed that our ska hater was not a former ska musician. No. Why would he be? Yeah. But, you know, Jay, Jay's got the credits, like you said. Blue Meanies, Skank and Pickle. And now grinding it out in <laughs> Captured by Robots. That's right. Just sitting on stage and hating ska. If anybody hasn't seen Captured by Robots yet, you have to go see them. They're amazing. So, Jay, you were telling me before that... um in the you know for captured by robots in the in the era of covid that you've like devised a um a mask that you wear that you have the microphone inside kind of a mask i mean it's like back in the day with captured by robots like in the uh 90s and 2000s and 2010s up to about 2015 when i quit the band for a while um uh, i was wearing like this crazy like mask with like fake eyes and all this stuff you know and so that was just part of the the band you know the robots didn't want to see my face so they made me wear a mask and stuff but um when the band restarted i started up with no mask you know which was uh which was great because it was a nice kind of a new beginning for me but um but then with covid i was uh i have no desire to catch covid so and i also um I have a problem with my nose where it's like, it doesn't drain properly. Like it's maybe deviated septum or something to that effect. And so it's really easy for me to get sinus infections on the road. So if I was ever to get COVID, who knows what's going to happen, even though I'm vaxxed and everything. So I realized that I could make a, put like a, a, a small dynamic microphone inside of an N95. Um, and so at first I tried like a respirator style, like with the rubber, but that didn't work very well because it's, it sounds like you're singing it into a boot. So uh, I basically um, got a really good uh, Aura N95 mask, basically, and then cable tie the microphone inside of it, um, seal up the hole with uh, some hot glue, and uh, run it. 
and then I have like a fake microphone that that cord runs to, which my main cable plugs into. And so basically, I can just I can do the set. I still have the same kind of physical reaction, you know, from having a mic in my face, but yet the microphone is inside the N95. And then that mask is covered in like a bandana, basically. So you can't see the mask. So it actually looks like part of your outfit then, not just like you're a guy with a mask? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I mean, because, you know, a white mask is not, doesn't look very good, sure. you know, on stage. So so now it's just like a, um, I mean, none of this looks good. But I did find out something interesting. People, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have experienced this yet, but this, and maybe it's just me because I got I got nice eyes. Everything else is garbage, but my eyes are good. I, so this is crazy. People say that I'm very attractive when I'm wearing the mask. And there is no bigger insult than for someone to like say how attractive you are when you've been wearing a mask the whole fucking night. They're basically saying you're really attractive if you just don't show your nose or your mouth or most of your face. And this has happened. And the craziest thing is that I've experienced this in my life with somebody else where I, I was like, wow, that guy's really attractive. Like, oh my God. And then, <laughs> and then I saw a picture of the way he looked without his mask. And I was like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you imagine what they look like and it's not what they look like. Well, this is like the whole thing back in the day of like being at a bar and then they bring the lights up and the person you've been talking to, it's like, oh, but except for it's a mask, which makes it even worse. Kind of, but I mean, even, but in a bar, you could still see their mouth and their, you know, sure. mouth, their mouthy fucking face. You know, <laughs> it's like this shit is just, yeah. So, so anyway, so I do the, I do the singing now with that, with the uh, internal microphone thing. And um, it's not ideal. I don't love it, you know, cause I, I, you can't really work with mic positioning very well with that. Right. You know, I can't pull the mic away when I want to do something or or cup it or jam it into my throat when I want to do something fun, you know. But um, but I, I tell you what, I, I was doing some shows and uh, a lot of people got COVID during those shows, test, tested positive the next day. And I did not. I haven't I haven't gotten anything yet. So this tour is going to be the first long tour I do with wearing the mask. So we'll see what happens. How is it, though, um, that you solved the problem with the mask in terms of having um, the microphone directly on your mouth? That's one problem that people have that try to do this. But the other problem, it seems like to me, would be it'd be a little exhausting because the mask is making it harder to breathe. And so therefore, your movements are probably a little more difficult. Um, maybe a little bit. I mean, I wouldn't. Um, those masks are really not that bad, especially this particular type that I got. It's a. Um, it's like a trifold mask, you know? Um, and it's, uh, it just, everything is, is pretty easy with it. It's about as easy as you can get with an N95. It's breathing is not very difficult. Talking, you can hear through it and stuff, but yet it's still N95. It's a, it's just a nice design for the most part. And it's not going to be a hundred percent. I mean, you know, but I did a, a small West coast tour with this, which was like seven or eight dates. And, uh, I mean, I never felt extra tired and you know and honestly if you're if you're singing right which i don't but but eventually i will <laughs> you really aren't using that much air to do it you know i mean if you're using that much air you're going to be um you're not doing it right but um 
but I've been working on my technique and everything. But yeah, but I've done a bunch of shows with this so far, and it, it really hasn't been a problem. It's I'm not overheating or anything like that. It's just kind of, yeah, it's not bad. Pre-pandemic, people were exercising wearing masks for like altitude training. So it's kind of like that. Yeah. And I mean, you could, it's, it's not that bad. It's just, and my lungs are good. So, you know, it's just gotta, if I was sick, it probably would be a real pain. Yeah. You know, but. And so you've dodged it completely so far. You haven't caught COVID. Yeah. I haven't caught it yet. Awesome. Good job. And I've been, and I was, I've been, like I said, I've been, did a little baby tour and uh, been around people where after, after the show the next day, they tested positive. So and it's not that I'm afraid of getting COVID because I don't think it's, I mean, I, I'm so like I got four shots in me now, right. so it's like, what's it going to do to me? But the main thing is, is just, I don't want to screw people on the shows, yeah. you know, and like have to cancel. Cause I mean, I've heard bands where they had to, you know, um, the, they would lose their singer for a bunch of shows, you know? And so then other, like, I think it was, I don't know if that's why Guar was doing that where they, where their singer was gone if he had COVID, but I bet it is, you know, right. but other shows I know, or bands, I know that, um, they actually had to have like somebody in the band fly home because they just felt like garbage and they had just had to have people fill in for the rest of the tour. But, you know, for me, that's, that's not an option. <laughs> There's nobody who, who can do this. I was talking to um, Dave Hilliard from the Slackers and he's telling me that they have like people on deck to, to fill in. Well, this, in, in this era, you have to. Yeah. <laughs> and then that some of the members can do different things. So they're kind of prepared, like, Oh, if our trombone player gets sick, you know, we we can kind of work it around a little bit. But you can't wear a mask when you're playing trombone. I mean, all of the horror, you know. I mean, what a drag. But uh, yeah. So, but you, but the thing too with the capture by robots, which might be to your benefit. Yeah, you're the you you can't catch it. You're the only one. But you don't have band members that are going to go off and party at the bar and then bring it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Ideally. So you're a very small bubble. Yeah, the only worry I have is when I stay with people, you know, stay at the houses and stuff like that. Because, you know, I've I've never tried to wear a mask when I sleep, but I'd really rather not try that. You know, because it's <laughs> yeah. just it's just a little too restricting for me. You know, it's yeah, it's doable. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the night, when when um, the show is over, I mean, I'm really glad to take off the mask. I mean, you know, it's it's really nice. But uh, but there's gonna be a lot of van sleeping, I'm sure. Sure. Yeah. And just hoping for the best. And you know what? And if I do catch it, you know, I mean, it, I'm going to catch it eventually. So, you know, I'll just have to cancel shows. And what I really don't want to catch is the monkeypox now. That's just going to fucking suck. Yeah. But, but you know, I'm going to try. In the past, I used to like roll around on the floor and like I'd fall and do all this shit. And I'm, I'm really hoping I don't do much of that this tour, but I probably will. If the Holy Spirit takes you. Yeah, seriously, it's, <laughs> you become a possessed person when you get on stage. So you told me too that during uh during the initial part of the pandemic when we were all stuck inside, that you found a lot of comfort in listening to old Rocksteady songs. Yeah, like it's the only thing that got me through. I'm curious, like, who some of your favorite artists or some of your songs that you really particularly cared for. <laughs> there was this fucking mixtape that I found um, online, and. Oh God, I got to find out. I forget who the guy is, but it was like this DJ, right? And he did all the, you know, in between the songs, you know, the, uh, let me tell you one thing, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> he'd go off on shit <laughs> and he'd be adding to the songs and stuff like that. Um, 
as, like that's my problem. I don't know any song names or very few. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would just listen to the same rock steady mix um, that went on for like four hours, and it was great. Um, and it used to be on YouTube, and then they took it off YouTube, and then um, uh, I'm gonna find it right now while we're talking. So, um, what is it about Rocksteady specifically that that you liked or you do like? I would say it, it's it's weird. There's there's something about it that's very peaceful, that's very uplifting about it, um, but also the the age of these songs and the way that they're recorded, it, it just makes me feel um, really good. It's just, it's a very, it's uplifting, but yet it's, um, it's authentic. And that's what I don't like about um, 80s, 90s, 2000s, 2010 ska. It just doesn't feel authentic to me. It's like, um, and not to be racist, but you know, white ska i just can't stand white ska it's just i mean except for maybe specials you know specials have a you know they're they're good but um but that the the kind of 60s rock steady like it just i don't know you could just feel the authenticness just dripping from it you know what i mean it's uh it just i don't know i just it, i just love it um okay so the guy's name was v-tone who did this okay V-Tone, I'm going to look up, it's on Mixcloud, where he, where the new, where that, there it is, studio, okay, so, so most of the stuff that I like was Studio One stuff. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I'm going to send you the link. Awesome, yeah. So you can see exactly what saved my life. Maybe we can put it in the show notes. Yeah, let's put it in the show notes. I mean, you could listen to this, I mean, for me, it's like this, at one point, um, you know, my girlfriend had to move out because she was uh, uh, when we didn't know what COVID was going to do early on, you know, cause she's a nurse and it was a real worry that I was going to catch it and stuff like that. So, uh, but we had like a, a, a rabbit that um, we were taking care of. that was a medical foster rabbit that needed all these medical procedures done to him all the time because he had this gut problem called megacolon. And so um, I was all alone having to do like to give him fluids and, and, belly rubs and these uh, enemas to keep him alive basically um and i wasn't experienced at any of it and so this music just like i don't know it calmed me down in a way where i could actually do it you know it was a, a very difficult time for me um but yeah i've i've and and it's also like it, it's a, a great thing to just listen to um you can let your mind go free when you listen to it too like um some music I really concentrate on the music, but with this I just find myself singing along, and it's all—it's like a form of meditation, basically. Yeah. So let's go back to um, the early days before the Blue Meanies. Oh gosh. You became a bass player. I find you know ba- sometimes bass players are very much bass players and very 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 interested in the in the specificness of the instrument. Tell me what what it was about bass and why you were drawn to the instrument. I think in high school, somebody needed a bass player. And so it just kind of became my thing, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot in, in this world, we just, we accept whatever roles we kind of just accept for ourselves, you know? And it's like, back then I didn't, um, I didn't feel like I had quite the tonal knowledge to play guitar. 
you know, like I was better with single note lines. I wasn't, um, wasn't a great musician back then. And so it just seemed like bass players were always in demand. And so I was like, well, I could, I could do that. And so I just kind of, I don't know. I, I, um, throughout my life, there's been one kind of common thread that's gone on and it's basically, it doesn't matter what you do as long as you throw yourself into it a hundred percent. Like you can mm-hmm. do anything, just throw yourself into it, obsess about it, get OCD about this shit and you'll be a success in anything. And it sounds like, you know, bullshit motivational talk, but it's, it's really true. I mean, when I decided to do robots, I was like, it doesn't matter that you're doing robots right now. None of this matters. Just get into it. Just do it. And it's the same, and the same thing was with bass playing and, you know, everything. Mm-hmm. No, it makes sense. I mean, the more you'd get into something, the better you get at it and the more you, you more you can get out of it and do something unique with it. Well, back then, uh, well, when I started the robots, at least it was, it was, uh, it was a matter of self-preservation too, because it was, uh, I had nothing going on in my life. You know, I just moved to, well, I'd been in San Francisco for a while at that point, but I just found that it was, I wasn't doing anything that was making me happy. You know, I was playing with pickle at the time, but it wasn't really making me happy at all. And I just had to figure out something to, occupy my time and it was like and so that became it make robots yeah but anyways yeah bass bass just was like a you know i i started doing it uh, recreationally and then uh in uh high school a jazz band got like started uh, with a new band director we had at school and he was really loose and awesome and cool and uh uh really good at, at teaching us kids that like it's not really about uh you know what you can do it's all about arrangements and stuff like that you know we you know he really he he affected me a lot and so i started playing electric with the jazz band and then i expressed that i was interested in playing upright and he you know encouraged me to to start doing that and so then i joined the orchestra the, the last year in high school and you know took lessons and everything so and that was that was it i was bass guy so you're from like a Chicago suburb originally? Yeah, Deerfield. So you enrolled in college in Carbondale, Illinois, Southern yeah. Illinois. Mm-hmm. And you went there to specifically to study jazz? Yeah, Carbondale, the the epicenter of jazz. <laughs> <laughs> it was mostly just to get away from my family and get away from everything that I knew of suburban Chicago kind of Jewish suburb safety, you know, like just everything that I kind of despise about um, insular societies, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, what's Carbondale like? It's like a kind of a low key college town. Well, back then, yeah, it was real, pretty rural until you got to the college area, you know. Um, and I really liked that. And um, what I really liked most, or more than anything, was the 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 feeling of a scene like it was a small town and so there was a music scene and it was like it was small and everybody went to these house shows and everything like that and um it was a great time because it just it felt like it felt um had a feeling of community that i've never felt since i left there i've never had a sense of community in any other place what was your living situation like in carpendale uh, you know dorms for two years or dorms for a year and then uh was it dorms for two years yeah dorms for the whole time when I was okay 
right back after this. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You formed Blue Meanies. Um, was your vision? Well, to start, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah you're, at the time, you were really into Fishbone and, and Red Hot Chili Peppers. These were kind of the... <laughs> that, was my, that was my jam. <laughs> I loved them. I loved... I mean, I had a Fishbone painted on the back of my biker jacket. Man, I was, I was in. Red Hot Chili Peppers, too? Oh, yeah, definitely. But nothing, none of the... You know, this was early Chili Peppers. Nothing like of the... I don't know. Oh, fuck you. Garbage. <laughs> bullshit. I mean, it was all garbage bullshit, but, you know, but, but back there was, I was very into, you know, because like when I said throw yourself into it, I was like Mr. Funk bass. I was like, I spent all my time practicing slap and uh, trying to do the Tower of Power kind of, you know, like, I loved that. So who was the initial Blue Meanies lineup? then well i put up ads like like um not ads but you know uh, flyers with the little rip off things you know like tear offs um looking for uh i think i had found a drummer whose uh last name was his name was kendall vance when we're not related but we did <laughs> kind of strange um and i met him and we jammed a few times and it was great and so i was looking for a guitar player and a singer and so that was what the uh flyers were for and so um, this guitar player who lived down there, his name was Chuck. I forget his last name, but uh, uh, Chuck was the first guitar player for Blue Meanies. And then um, eventually through, uh, through convincing, you know, I got Bill to join up. That took a while, you know, because he didn't really want to do it because he had been in some bands and was tired of it. But I convinced him to just try it. And if he didn't like it, don't do it, you know. And so he tried it and he liked it. So there we go. Where did you know him from? Just from the scene, or did you see his older bands? Yeah, from the scene. Like I'd be at, um, I I tell people, hey, I'm looking for a singer for this band, and people would say, oh, you got to try Bill. He was in this band called Green Plaid, um, and he was real good. You know, you should try to get him. And so he never answered any of my calls when I called him and left messages because he didn't want to didn't want to do it. Um, and then I saw him at a party, and kind of was like, oh, hey, you haven't returned any of my calls. And he was like, yeah, I just didn't want to do it. And I'm like, well, you know, just try it. I mean, if you don't want, uh, you know, I was being pushy, you know. Um, and uh, so, yeah, he tried it and he, he liked it. And, you know, then at that, uh, I think after that point, he was he was in. He was, once he kind of saw what it could be, he was he was locked in. Of the Carbondale people, was it just you and, and Bill that, ended up in the later era. Well, even you didn't end up in the later, later era, but that continued on basically. Well, kind of, um, I was going to, Bill was graduating and I was going to move back to Chicago to transfer to DePaul university. Um, cause Carbondale wasn't cutting it for me anymore. <clears throat> um, but then what's crazy was that, um, Jim Cooley and Tony, two guys from Carbondale as well, who played in different bands, um, who were great musicians, they were graduating as well. 
and moving back up to Chicago. And so we were like, oh, well, look at this. Like, maybe we could make this band work in Chicago. And so they said that they wanted to do it. And uh, and so we, you know, looked for a, we had a keyboard player down there too. His name was Seth. And I don't want to keep him out of this. I mean, he was, he was a good keyboard player, very much a stoner. Um, uh, and so he wasn't, we, we pretty much decided that we had had enough with him. So we ended up uh, kicking. Well, yeah, t- tell me, tell us your, your Seth story, wh- what he was like. I mean, he's a, he's, you know, he's a young guy, um, little tiny twisty dreads on top of his head, uh, always twisting on him. <laughs> and uh, he was just a stoner, you know, like he would, we, we'd be rehearsing and uh, we'd have this stuff that we were trying to do a real intricate something or other. And we'd explain it to him. Oh, like, you know, like for 10 minutes, explain the parts and the way things are going to go. And then after it was all done, then he'd go, wait, now what are we doing? And so you have to do it all again. I'm going to kill you. And that's that overall is pretty much why we got done with him, because we just couldn't take it anymore. You know, I mean, I mean, I'm a stoner, too, but it's like, you know, you got to if you're if you're doing art, you know, it's like you got to kind of tone it back a little bit, you know, dial it back. Yeah, but um, but so anyway, so yeah, so we decided to move to Chicago and uh, and start doing this, and uh, found a keyboard player in in uh, Chicago who wanted to do it. Chaz. Yeah, Chaz. I don't know how that came about, um, but he's a good guy. Uh, and then um, and then I got my old friend from Deerfield, uh, uh, Jimmy Flame, involved um, because I was saying, hey, I got this band, we're doing it, you know, and so uh, he. At that point, I think he either left, either dropped out of college or graduated. I think he dropped out um, and then uh, came up and started playing in the band. So so back in Carbondale, uh, you, the house houses were kind of, there was a lot of house shows. Lots. Of, that was my, oh, I loved house shows, man. Basement shows. The Lost Cross House has kind of been, kind of become oh, yeah. famous at this point. But you guys played there several times? Yeah. I mean, you know, we'd squeeze into there. I mean, it's super low ceiling, so you can't jump around too much. Um, it was one of the only shows I've played, one of the only two shows I've played, uh, tripping on mushrooms. (laughs) Yeah. Was it like the trip on mushrooms while playing? Um, I mean, not weird or anything. The only thing that was weird was, you know, it gets really, uh, you kind of a sped up feeling with mushrooms, you know, um, uh, uh, my heart races a little bit. And so. And, and your brain starts to get a little wonky. And uh, I was having to run sound that night, too. We we had won a, a PA system when we were in Carbondale at a battle of the bands. And so we brought the PA, and I was setting it up. And I had all these, you know, a ton of cables, and they were all mixed together. And so Bill held up the cable and he, he, cables, and he was like, ooh, it's spaghetti. And I was just like, oh, my God. It was just like so many cables to unravel, you know, when you're tripping on mushrooms. It's... I, I think I, I handed it off and I was like, could you please just unravel this? I can't deal with this right now. <laughs> but I do that at shows today too. Like if I have a bunch of cables that are all jacked up, I'll just find somebody in the crowd. I'll be like, will you unravel this for me? <laughs> <laughs> it just, you know, it's like to, to put your brain power into something like that when you're trying to like get ready. It's, it's, it's hard. Yeah. You, know? you have, you have a lot of setup with captured by robots too. So. Oh yeah. A little, a little bit takes a village. So Carbondale era, what percent of your set was funk or funk oriented? A bunch of it early on. I mean, most of it. It was, you know, we did like funk, ska, 
stuff, you know, like mm-hmm. with with a little bit of heavy stuff, but nothing really too heavy at that point. I mean, our first, you know, thing we put out was called, uh, what was it? Uh, Nude Ain't Crude was our cassette. Mm. So very hippie elements to it. You know, we stole a bunch of fake flowers from a graveyard and uh, uh, Bill like painted all these circles with these spirals on them, like neon paints. And we'd have black lights, you know, we're like, oh, it's pretty pathetic when I think back to it. But, uh, you know. Those were that was our era. You, you know, it, it kind of didn't really hadn't really clicked in my brain at this point until this point. But I do remember in the '90s that there was like this weird overlap between funk rock bands and hippie bands. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and I mean there was and there was definitely like a a hippie element running through the Carbondale scene. You know, quite a bit. You know, um, and so that it it influenced us, I guess. You know, and you know going from. Uh, I came down to Carbondale with so much angst and I was just so, I was such an angry kid back then. It was just ridiculous. Um, And Carbondale chilled me out a lot. And uh, I don't know if I'm thankful for that or not, but I I think I am. It doesn't matter. Was that a song that dates back to those years or was that after? I think so. Yeah. I think that seems that. Yeah. That's an early ska song. Yeah. That was like, that was like back when, uh, you know, during the first, Iraq war. Uh-huh. You know, I was kind of involved in that. Like I remember that was the era. Cuz you wrote that song, right? That's a Jay song. Uh I I don't know. I don't know. I might have. I I mean, you know, back then I don't think anybody I can't say any of the songs were mine and mine alone except for that too much shit. That was mine. Oh yeah, yeah. Which I don't know if I want to <laughs> take credit for that, but Let's clear the air on too much shit. Uh, on our Blue Meanies episode, uh, Bill claimed that you wrote that as a as a song for your college class. No, never. <laughs> college would laugh me. They'd be f at you. Fail. So this song dates back to your high school years, right? Yeah, I was. Uh, you know, um, there's a part in a minor threat where a uh, song where he's like too much shit, and I don't know. It just kind of stuck in my brain, and so. Um, Someday we'll look back and laugh. Ha <laughs> 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 ha. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Um, yeah, and so I had a four track and I just wrote songs and they were ridiculous, you know? And so I wrote that song and I was like, that's pretty cool. Like, I, I can get with that. And so at some point I brought it to the band and said, do you guys want to do this? And, you know, we, back then it wasn't, there wasn't, I don't know, like the kind of stuff we were doing. I wouldn't say we were um, really breaking any barriers or you know breaking breakthrough shit but you know going between jazz and hardcore seemed really pretty wild you know so and it felt very good to have these extreme changes and stuff like that um and so yeah it was just something to do when at that that phase of a band i think how things sound in a practice space or in a live setting is so important you're just like, wow, this sounds like, listen to the this sudden dynamic and look at people's faces as they react. That's really dictates so much of what you write. Yeah. And and back then, nobody had really heard much of this stuff. I mean, John Zorn was doing a lot of some stuff like this and some Japanese artists were, but, you know, I, did, I wasn't familiar with any of those people back then. So it was just kind of, um, I don't know, it was just something that we did. And it was like, well, this is kind of, this is something to do. So and it felt it felt pretty good. 
Can you remember the names of any of your like early funk songs? Well, Nude Ain't Crude was one. Okay. Um, um, Harry the Canary. <laughs> <laughs> we had a we had a horn player in Carbondale. His name was Harry, uh, and uh, and his parents owned like the Pepsi distribution for the whole uh, like Southern Illinois, Northern Kentucky region. And so he was so rich. So we went to his like mansion house once and like he, his servant like made us lunch and stuff. Oh my God. It was so crazy. <laughs> but so we were, we just, so somebody was like, we wrote a song, Harry the Canary. It was like, <laughs> and it was like, Harry the Canary, Harry the Canary, you know, you get the idea. Lots of, lots of slapping and popping. Oh, there was slapping all over that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You got any more? Any any other funk songs you remember? Um, oh gosh, there's a cassette out there. I mean, if you look around, you can find it. Nude ain't crude. It had all of our early things. We're gonna have to dig that up. Yeah. Um, Grandma Shampoo was that? Did that? Did that song date back to the Carmendale years? No, I don't think so. Okay. I think that was. I think that was once we got to. Or it could have been. It could have been, but I don't really know. Um. Uh. Yeah, it started mostly because I, I grew an interest in uh, klezmer music. Mm. You know, it's like Jewish folk music, basically. Um, and so I actually played in the klezmer band for a while, for a very short amount of time. And so it just, I just got very into the music, you know, because it's like my people. And so I was like, that's great. So ended up uh, doing that and uh, bringing that to the band. And then Bill wrote the lyrics about how, um, you know, grandma got cremated and then put into your shampoo and you washed your hair with your grandma basically yeah totally normal lyrics perfect <laughs> so there was one other thing about carbondale i want to talk about you had a um side band if you will called uh, oh scorbica scorbica explain scorbica yeah. scorbica is great <laughs> scorbica it was the name was supposed to be Sorbicae, which was a Latin for under an assumed name. But by the time we got to the gig, we forgot it. And so we were like, Scorbica. That's what it was. <laughs> but Scorbica is a great name. Like, because what the fuck does it mean? Nothing. Like, it's great. So, and uh, that was just Jim Cooley and me and uh, Tony. And it was, um, it was really heavy. We had songs like Mood Ring and, uh, um, oh God, what was that song? Um, Oh shit! Uh, oh, I can't remember for the life of me. It was like, oh, something about told me to die, but I'm not gonna die. <laughs> it was like, uh, <laughs> I don't, I don't remember. I, I'll try. Jim Cooley has a copy somewhere of this that I told him to upload somewhere, and I don't think he ever did. But Scarbica, this was yeah. just like a few shows you did. Yeah. Like what we did it once because Blue Meanies couldn't do a show, and Jim and me and Tony were like, "Yeah, we want to do it." So we we did it. After you moved to Chicago, did the funk stuff sort of kind of fade away right away, or did it was it a slow process? It we started getting kind of anti-funk. Mm -hmm. I think it's because of the our lives became like noticeably more difficult when we moved to Chicago. You know, there was there was no more sense of really community that much because everybody was very spread out. You know, Chaz lived on the South side. We lived on the North suburbs. Um, I was back at home. I had to get a job, you know, um, 
Bill and Tony and some of those guys were, you know, uh, in the city. Jim was in Downers Grove. Everything got a lot harder. And we weren't really making much money, but we were trying to tour a bunch. All the money went back into the band. Um, and so, yeah, it just it got to be a, a difficult thing. And I think um, when we were in Carbondale, you know, in this insulated society, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, funk is great and everything. But then once you get kind of things get a little harder, you want to write angrier, heavier music or something to that effect. Yeah. More aggressive, at least. One thing I've always liked about Blue Meanies was the the way you use horns. When did you when do you feel like that really took shape where the horns had this element of jazz and the intricate techniques? Um probably once Jimmy Flame got in the band, you know, cuz he's a really good jazz player. Um but then we also when we were in Chicago, we got Dave Smith, who's an incredible composer. Um and we had uh Sarah Smith as well, did not related. Um they uh she was fantastic. We had we had a, you know, a bunch of different horn players they really were responsible for a lot of the kind of jazz takes on stuff, you know, cause they were all trained in it. But there was a definitely amount of you guys saying, yes, we like it, bring it on that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we were open to it and they did it and it sounded good. So, I mean, what's, what's not to like, and it also set us apart from a lot of the kind of dumb horn bands, you know, like Voodoo Glow Skulls uh, and uh, others. Did you start playing with ska bands? and stuff pretty quick or did that when did that come into play i think we 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 always played with ska bands um it was just because it was the closest thing to what we did really Mm -hmm. you know we had songs with ska elements to it so and um and our heavy stuff wasn't ever really that heavy so we wouldn't fit with heavy bands at all so um you know so ska bands just seemed like i don't know i mean i think you know that was the world we were kind of traveling in yeah, it made sense. And the audiences were, for the most part, receptive for what you were doing. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, yeah, I want to ask. So in 1992, you released Peace, Love, and Groove. <laughs> I was looking at that. Have you seen that album cover, Adam? No, I haven't. Okay. It's got uh, you, Chaz. Who all of us. Yeah, it's all you guys. Well, it's all of us. We're, it's split. So, so half of us are on one side and half of us are on the other side. Okay. And so on the front... You guys are uh, sitting in these lab coats and you have uh, like... It's just an imitation of a Beatles cover. That's all it is. But you have slabs of beef. Yeah, that's what they did on the Beatles cover. It was like a a Beatles cover that was never released. Yeah. And so we thought we were being clever by doing that, which I don't know. I I never really... I can't say I was ever down for doing that, but it happened. And so, you know, whatever. (laughs) This is 90... So 92, this is kind of... You guys are... are You're more active touring at this point, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, basically, once um, I went to Carbondale in 89, and then 91, 92 is when we came back up. And from there until 90, 95, 94, it was just constant touring. Not all the time, but, you know, whenever we could. Weekends, because a lot of people still had jobs, you know, like every weekend and then tour, you know. Do you recall playing um, their first time playing the outhouse in Kansas City? Oh, yeah. Mosquitoes were like as big as cats. It was crazy. This is the show you met, uh, ME330 and Skank and Pickle, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. That was a, that was a real wild time. Just, you know, it's out in the middle of a cornfield. Like, <laughs> you literally drive out, and it's like this grain storage, you know, utility barn in the middle of nothing. And, uh, um, and we went out there, and it was a great. I don't know. It's it was so 
awesome because it was so weird and underground and um, raw and real. It was, yeah, I loved it. In Defense of Ska will return in a moment. So I want to ask about a tour you did. So you're still in Blue Meanies and you're touring with Skank and Pickle. And um, Mike Mattingly is still the bass player at this point. Oh, yeah. And so, but he's not the bass player the entirety of this tour. Oh, yeah. He got kicked out. Do you want to tell the story about him getting kicked out? Uh, sure. Uh, he was unhappy um, with his band, the Skank and Pickle. He was very unhappy. It had been 10 years of playing uh, fake and Jamaican, which he was screaming because he was just drunk as hell. And he was like, I played fake and Jamaican for 10 years, <laughs> 10 years. And he was wasted. And he was like, like early in the night, you know, I mean, like we had, um, I don't know if we had played our set yet. I think we had, but he was running around already dressed up for the show. You know, like he wore like wacky outfits, like these, like, like, I think it was like dress pants that were cut off and like a suit jacket and then he was you know totally bald but then he had like this awful wig on like and so he was wearing this walking around with his bass before the show i mean i think we had maybe played but it wasn't time for them to play and so it just seemed very you know because he was drunk you know he was just he was really mad and he was acting out and so um and he was just really angry and he he did some shit to me and i i seem to recall he kicked me in the chest and that got me really, really mad. And so instead of doing what I would probably do now, which is beat his fucking ass, um, I thought, well, let, you know, nothing like being sneaky. So as he was talking to other people, and he's still holding his stupid ass bass, so I just detuned his bass, like, all the way. <laughs> and I knew he wouldn't notice that I detuned his bass. So they end up setting up, and, uh, and this is in Princeton, at Princeton University, actually, uh, in like, I don't know, some sort of a, a, a meeting house or something. So uh, so he gets up there to um, to do it. And, you know, Mike Park's, out, Mike Park's up there. Everybody's up there. And they're like, you know, one, two, three, four. The horns come in with their, you know, bacon Jamaican. And it's all, you, here we go. And it's time for him to come in. And <laughs> and just the notes are all wrong and he is so confused and he's looking at his bass like what the hell is happening um and and everybody's watching this like what the hell is going on and so mike park runs over and turns off his amp and so now there's no bass so it's just lynette and horns and drums um and uh yeah so and and then he finally figured it out and started tuning and and it just took forever and he was just he was complaining on stage and just yelling at Mike and just bitching the whole show. And people are like, Oh my, I can't like, this is such a train wreck. Just a dumpster fire, right? And watching a band implode on stage is an amazing thing. I, I, you know, I really enjoy seeing that. Um, but uh, yeah, so that happened. And then later that night at the hotel, they decided to kick him out and put him on a bus back to California and uh, they were going to cancel the tour. And then they, but they, someone who was in the room when that was happening was like, well, maybe Jay could do the, the, the baselines and, you know, make it so that we can actually uh, keep going. And so I said, sure, you know, cause I mean, I'm trained bassist. I could do it. So um, we took a day, day or two off in some town where we got a rehearsal spot and uh, I learned all the songs and wrote notes down so I could like have a cheat sheet 
and um, did it up. And then uh, I finished the tour with them as much as I could. We ended up actually getting snowed in in uh, Denver because hmm. we were trying to go. Uh, we had the show in Denver and then we were going to get up and then go to our show in Utah. But we got kind of a late start. And when we got to uh, uh, Wyoming, what's what's the town on top of 25 uh, above? Uh, I know what you're talking about. It's southern Wyoming. Yeah. Cheyenne. Cheyenne, Cheyenne, Cheyenne of course. Um, and so when we got to Cheyenne, they basically were like, you can't go anywhere. You can't go south. You can't go north. Can't go east. Can't go west because it was the ice had just blocked the entire freeway. So, um, so I ended up having to. Uh, 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 we 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 all just stayed at this Flying J for I don't remember how long. It was a really long time. And uh, at the end of things, I ended up. Um, uh, we we went back down to uh, to Denver, and actually ended up um, working as a roofing company for <laughs> my friends. Uh, <laughs> One of the guys in the band had a brother who was a roofer, and so we ended up going over there and uh, um, getting on top of a roof and actually like wrecking shingles to make some money. Yeah, so we 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 demoed a roof, I guess it's called. That's what sometimes you got to do weird things as a band. Yeah, and I mean we're all just like, <laughs> and we were so excited because we each got like a hundred bucks for doing that. So we're like, yeah, <laughs> which is like more than we had ever seen from the band, you know. Yeah, one time I uh, went with Flat Planet. I, I raised some money for the band by talking them into painting a fence for some neighbor at my parents' house. <laughs> it's like days of fence painting. We were like raising money for something, probably like merch or something. <laughs> well, if you ain't got no money, I mean, you got to do what you got to do to to make it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I've worked tons of jobs to be able to make a kind of a nest egg to do the band, you know? Yeah. So what was it like on that tour? Was it easy? Like once you got through those first few days or was it, was it challenging to play these songs that you had just learned? It wasn't very challenging to to do the songs necessarily. It was challenging to uh, to play two sets a night. Sure, yeah. That kicked my ass. I was not ready for that because I give my all when I play. So one show is one thing, but doing two in a row is oh man, yeah, that that wore me out. At that point, I guess this was before they started doing the uh, introduce each band member segment of the show. No, I think they they did it during that year. Cause I mean, I, I remember doing like that stupid little dance that you're supposed to do. So that was your thing. You did a little dance. I mean, that's <laughs> what they did. I mean, it was everybody did the stupid little dance. So, I mean, do your stupid little dance, J-Bot. But see, like uh, a couple of years later, um, they were touring with Tantra monsters. Okay. And Jerry got sick and he had to leave the tour and they had, um, Shige, the Tantra, the Tantra monsters trombonist filled in for him. Okay. During the introduce each band member thing, he didn't do a wacky dance. He would just do something psychotic. Like he would just leave the stage and then come out completely naked and covering his genitals with like an ice scoop or something. Just That's cool. That's that's even better. <laughs> yeah. See, for him. You don't always have to do a little dance. Well, I mean, you know, you got to remember, like, I, I just, this was not my thing. Like I jumped into it and I don't know, I, I never felt like I was actually part of it. You know, because especially mm. for that time, because that was just like a a few shows, you know. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so I I didn't feel that comfortable getting too crazy. Not that I I'm really a guy to get naked and put a an ice dispenser on my dick. I mean, I just I just I don't know. Never really was one to do that. You're more of a guy to build an entire band out of robots. <laughs> well, that's just out of necessity. <laughs> Everything I do is just out of necessity. Sure. You know, yeah. Just, just, I mean, to 
to think that I could play and that I would have to deal with human band members right now is just, it's like those dreams that you're back in school and you're like, Oh my God, how the, what the fuck? You know, it's like just to deal with the bullshit of humanity right now. I mean, Oh, so how much longer did you last in blue meanies after this tour? It wasn't much longer, right? No, I think I quit them in 94 or 95. So were you mostly just burnt out on touring and having no money? No, none of it. I mean, not the no money. I mean, I was living at my mom's house in Deerfield still, and that was getting old real fast. Um, and uh, and we were fighting because, you know, the band wasn't making enough money and we weren't, I was not having fun anymore. And the band had gotten real clicky, you know, like in a big, I don't know, if, for, for the audience, you know, I mean, when you're in a band that's over three people, it's going to divide up into clicks, like into there's this group of people, there's this group of people, you know, it's like some people like to eat with other people and it can really get adversarial. And it really, and I was also um, not a great person then, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm not, I'm not horrible, but I mean, I have things that I, that, that I think are right, even if they're not, And I get mad and bitchy about things. And so it's, you know, like back then I was super mad about people smoking weed in the van. I was always worried about getting busted and them taking, because back then it was like, there was zero tolerance for fucking weed if you got caught by cops. So, um, and I had, uh, I didn't smoke at the time. I had, I actually used to smoke weed all the time, but I had to stop because I kicked in sinus infections that were like killing me. Um, and so, uh, They'd smoke weed in the van, and I just got super mad about it all the time. And so, uh, yeah, I was uh, uh, horrible. But they were horrible, too. So it was like a great combination of horribleness. So, yeah. Nothing like the dysfunction of a, of a band in your early 20s. Oh, I mean, you know, and, and at that point, you don't know who you are. You don't know what's important. You don't, you don't know anything. You know, you've just been thrust from one artificial situation into another. And so, um, and, and these illusions of grandeur you have, I mean, it's just a, a joke. We had a, a tour where we were supposed to do California shows, um, and we uh, we had to cancel the California shows we had on that tour with uh, Skank and Pickle, right, because of the, the snowstorm. Well, then later, we were supposed to do California again, and then shows just fell through. Like, we, we were in somewhere... Some desolate rest area somewhere out there, and we like got on a phone call with like someone who had been doing the shows, and they're like, "Yeah, there's no shows out here. Just go home." So we like turned around and went home. Like, what the fuck? Like, that's we were supposed to go all the way to L.A. and we were like in Nebraska and like or Colorado, and we just went home. So, um, yeah, I was pretty upset about that, and um, and yeah, we just we were fighting a bunch, and I remember we were in. Uh, at some point, we finally got to like. This might have, oh God, memories, man. I just, I remember once, maybe that was, we were in uh, California at the time and we turned around from Cal, from Northern California. Like I remember we were in Wairica and we were fighting a lot. Um, uh, that's, you know, right on the border between uh, yeah. California and Oregon. So like, if you go to Wairica now in like 2022, there's like basically a Taco Bell and McDonald's and a grocery store. It's like a nothing town. Yeah. There used to be this really cool restaurant there that I really liked that the building's still there, but they're gone. But, uh, um, yeah, I just remember just fighting so much. And then finally, I don't know if it was there or in Nebraska, but I just said, you know, I, I, I'm done. Like when we get to, 
when we get back home, you know, I'll do these. We had like two shows scheduled. I was like, well, I'll do these last two shows and then I'm out. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it felt real good to do that because I was finally, you know, I don't stick around. I, I don't keep doing things when things are going wrong. Like I either want to fix it or get out. And so it was time to get out. Do you think if there had been shows in California that that would have like delayed your departure or were you just done? I mean, maybe, but you know, I mean, it's, just, it's, it, when, when you're touring in a situation like this, um, over time, it just, it wears on you, man. It's like, I mean, ask anybody who's quit a band before, you know, it's like it, it's your whole life and you're watching everything not going the way you want, um, and failing. And then also, you know, you see the, the money situation and, and you just start to think like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Like, if you're not happy, you can't keep doing it. So I wasn't, it didn't have anything to do with the LA shows necessarily. It was just, I was just unhappy. You got to either change or leave when you're unhappy. And so I decided to leave and change my whole life. Cause I mean, I'm living at home with my mom. I mean, I'm 20 something years old. I'm like, this is embarrassing. Like I've got to get out there. So I decided at that point I was going to move to California because I had some connections in the Bay Area and uh, I'm still there today. You um, And you also, even though you were out of the band at this point, you recorded uh, Kiss Your Ass Goodbye with the band. Yeah. I uh, Yeah, because I mean, I wrote a bunch of this. Well, I helped. I mean, I wrote all the bass lines to the songs and stuff. So yeah, I, I came back to St. Louis and recorded with them. Did they ask you or were you, were you said, did you suggest it? I don't know. Yeah. How was that being out of the band and doing that recording? Uh, you know, I mean, like uh, a little awkward. It's like, you know, having a, a like sleeping with an ex-girlfriend. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, it's like, this ain't, this ain't quite right. Something feels different about this. But it was also kind of a testament. I really wanted to, to do it. I mean, I could have just said, fuck you guys, I'm done, you know, but, but I had spent all this time doing it. And just to document those songs that I spent a lot of time doing was, it just felt worthy to me just to kind of put a, a period on the end of it. So when you moved to San Francisco, um, there was no discussion about you being the new bass player for Skank and Pickle. Ian was the bass player at that point. I wasn't their bass player for years after I moved to San Francisco. Were that, you know, you, you said you knew people there was, were they some of the people or were you, were you close to them at that point or? Uh, yeah, I had started to be. Yeah. Like, you know, I was really good friends with Lynette before she really got into drugs. Um, uh, I mean, besides weed, you know, like I'd go and visit her in the sunset on weekends or like, you know, just, just cause I lived in, uh, in a Richmond and I would just ride my bike down there and we'd hang out like all day. It was great, you know, with her and her, her, uh, her girlfriend and her girlfriend's kids. And it was just, it was real nice. You know, it was like sense of family, you know? Um, and I'd also, no, that was later, but, um, but yeah, so, so, um, I was, I, you know, knew them from the tour, but Lynette was really the only one I really hung out with in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. But I, I just became part of like the music scene in San Francisco by, you know, like going to shows and seeing bands like Hickey and Fuckface and all these kind of early 90s awesome bands in the uh, Bay Area. My cousin was living here, too, at the time, and she she was very hooked into that whole scene. So she kind of got me involved with everybody and checking things out. And so I really felt like it it felt very nice like you know it was a uh, it was probably the only second time in my life where i felt like a scene that i could kind of be a part of like i was i felt like i was part of it not not really but you know i was uh scene adjacent let's say so you were you doing any music or bands between the time you moved to san francisco and and when you joined skank and pickle uh no 
I had, well, well, kind of. I played in a band called um, uh, The Invincible Magnificent Heroes with my friend Jimbo and some other people, and we dressed up like superheroes, and uh, um, it was a great band, but it just couldn't continue. I think it was uh, our drummer wasn't into it that much, and um, yeah, someone decided they didn't want to do it, and then we were all just like, oh, okay, well, I guess we're done. What kind of music? Uh, it was rock, like superhero rock. <laughs> superhero rock <laughs> not like aquabat superhero rock but it was you know there was a lot of like um i don't know it was kind of noisy kind of i mean I, I liked it it was it was really great it was fun but just it, the the desire wasn't there with a lot of the guys in the band so we just kind of disbanded what neighborhood were you living in in sf uh in a richmond for most of it um and then uh later on i moved to above that trader joe's on geary i don't know what neighborhood right. that is laurel heights i guess what were you doing for a job while you were in a, when you moved to sf when i first moved to san francisco i was jobbing i was a jazz because you know i played jazz for my yeah. know, whole life and uh, um, uh i was just being a jobbing upright bass player so i would do standard gigs and stuff play at gay bars doing you know tort nights you know um playing uh uh i played at macy's <laughs> you know all sorts of awful fucking experiences that i would never wish to repeat <laughs> what was so awful about them well you know you you study and you learn and you train to be this jazz bass player and then you find that you're just this fucking monkey in a tuxedo that nobody cares what you're playing nobody's listening to you and so why even do it your background music you're you're just like static and so who gives a shit you know you pour your heart out in a solo and you get like, <laughs> ouch, you know? And that was when I kind of soured on jazz at that point. Like, I mean, I still can listen to it, but I really don't like it anymore. I mean, it just, there's something about it. Just, it ruined me, yeah. you know? And I, I, I tried all sorts of stuff. I tried playing with like more free jazz guys and that didn't really work. I mean, it was just, it was such, uh, there was just no form to the music at all, you know? Um, it just, it never moved me. Nothing moved me as much as playing in the rock, ska, metal kind of thing, you know? So Skank and Pickle approaches you. I assume, I assume from their point of view, you're in the area now. You have played with them already. You're, it was a natural yeah. transition. And, and the reason why they, they were already having problems at that point, you know, because they ended up not telling their bass player about a bunch of shows they had booked and then they sprung it on him and he's like i can't do these i told you i had plans and they're like oh okay we'll just get another bass player and he's like what the fuck <laughs> <laughs> we've actually become friends ian um and i but uh yeah ian's a great guy yeah he's a great guy um and so it's just funny because it's like okay well and so they they said uh once they said i was going to do them he was like okay then i quit and I was like, okay, well, and I could use the money. So they were like, do you want to just be our bass player? I was like, yes. What were the shows like? Were they, they were already kind of at a bigger level at that point, right? Oh yeah. They were doing great. I mean, it was big crowds, you know, there was a, I mean, it was hotels all the time. There was no sleeping on floors, you know, um, it was, uh, it was just, it was, it was great. You know, big crowds. I felt like I could stretch my legs a little bit more with the band, you know, um, started doing some more, uh, upright electric with them and stuff like that like it was uh yeah it was it was great it was great for about um i don't know maybe a, a few months of touring was good and then it started to get a little weird it started to get a little methy because everybody was on not everybody but a lot of people were on meth 
and it started getting real kind of shitty, you know, a lot of mood swings, a lot of anger, a lot of bullshit. Um, and, uh, I couldn't handle it and people started like acting out really badly. And so it was just like, okay, well, I was like, I need to get out of this situation, but the money was so good that I'm like, well, stick with it for a while. Cause, cause you have nothing to go back to right now. So I decided to build this band of robots. And I actually, before that I had been playing with Chuck, we had like a side project where I built, I had already built one robot, um, uh, of early version of guitar bot. And, uh, um, and I asked Chuck to play drums with it. Um, and so uh, we ended up uh, getting together and we started Le Guiche Fantastique. <laughs> yeah. So when I toured with Skank and Pickle uh, as a roadie for like two, two and a half weeks or whatever it was in the Midwest, you were in the band. This was your era. And you had the Le Guiche Fantastique tapes on sale at the um, merch booth. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Yeah, you did. Wow. I the audacity of me. <laughs> but at that point, I I didn't catch a whiff that this was like you're moving in that direction and more I was like this is a thing I'm doing. A little fun little side thing. Well, it was, you know, but the um um and it was it was great, you know. It was really fun to do and stuff and people seemed to like it. I was playing upright like super distorted upright bass. I mean, it was really kind of cool. Um and uh, I was just screaming my head off. It was it was it was fun, but uh, <laughs> but then but then I started getting kind of tired of Chuck's drumming because he just I don't know he's a he's an interesting dude. Like he's really um, I don't know how to describe Chuck. He's he's like uh, kind of a space cadet on some things, but um, like I felt like he had no intuition to music. Like it was all learned. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, I, I noticed him counting all the beats and speaking them out like one, two, three, four, one, like, <laughs> and that was so foreign <laughs> to me, you know? Um, and also with schedules and all that stuff. And so finally I kind of decided, I don't know if this was after I was out of them out of skank and pickle or not, but then I decided to just build a robot drummer like a drummer, just to replace him. Cause I couldn't do that. We'll be right back after this. So the tour I did, I want to ask you a question. Um, yeah. I recall that, so we the tour is with uh, Seven Seconds. Oh, yeah. I recall that Kevin Seconds got his guitar stolen one day. Oh, yeah. So what do you remember of that whole experience? I, I think it was Kansas. I think it was Kansas City. I'm not sure, but yeah. And it was like this, uh, this place where there was like a um, uh, courtyard where people could go, go. It was more like for bands to stash their gear in the back. Um, and, uh, but people could go back there. And so some people went back there and grabbed some of Kevin Seconds guitars and threw them up on the roof (laughs) (laughs) to to then come up on the roof later and steal them. So, uh, it's the end of the night. We noticed guitars are missing. And someone said like, there's some people on the roof. And they realized that they had thrown these guitars up on the roof. And so they started chasing these guys. And it's like, the, you know, it's like two bands chasing these kids who tried to steal these guitars, right? And so we're like driving through the city looking for these guys. And we, <laughs> and, and Skank and Pickle, so we, we figured we lost him, right? He got the guitars back, but we figured we lost him, right? So Skank and Pickle is driving back to the hotel or wherever we were going. And all of a sudden, one of the dudes crosses right in front of the van in the middle of the street. <laughs> <laughs> the worst luck for this dude ever. So 
we pull over real fast and the doors open and the van empties chasing this guy. I mean, it must have been terrifying for this young man. Like, holy shit. And so we're chasing him and we finally <laughs> end up at this dead end where it's um, it's like this fenced off area and then a metal roof where the only if you, to go off this roof. I mean, you're plunging down a few stories. And so um, so the guy can't go off that way. So he gets to this area. He's just like at this door and we're all facing him, you know, and it's a <laughs> standoff. And somebody, I think it was Chuck, went up and just pounded him in the face. And uh, <laughs> and we called the cops at that point, which was a real stupid move, but uh, called the cops at that point. And then it just got kind of weird, you know. And so cops came and they were like, well, we can't really do anything because you punched him. So if he wants to press charges on you, so we just let it go. Um, but yeah, that was, uh, man, we emptied that van. God, we were... <laughs> <laughs> And the funny thing is, too, I imagine from his point of view, aside from you and Chuck, tallest band in ska, huge people. Just to see Lynette and and Lars and Jerry barreling towards you. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) Terrifying. And I do remember, too, you were doing the electric upright on that tour, um, which was uh, I think that was an interesting element to the band that in a way didn't fit, but fit in its how it didn't fit i wasn't doing it for the good of the band i was doing it because i wanted to i liked playing it and i wanted to kind of do it but again it just comes down to my you know lack of flexibility and pushing my way you know on people so you were not happy on that tour or were you i don't know if i was happy or not i mean am i ever happy i don't know i mean i just (laughs) what is happiness well i mean you know i've i've gone through this my whole life you know it's like i don't i mean even when i'm happy i mean sometimes yeah i've been happy but it's like i don't know life is kind of pain like i don't uh i'm i I think for a lot of jews like we tend to be very um morose about things i don't know at least i do i don't know why Uh, internal damage jewish mothers that's what it is Mm -hmm. Skinky Pickle was fun for a while, but yeah, at some point it definitely turned to be really um, not fun, but I could deal with it because, like I said, the money was really good at the time. But you got to a point where even that, you had you just quit, right? Yeah, because it just, it got, it was ridiculous. I mean, once um, Lynette kind of had a meth freak out after her grandma died or something, um, and we were like at a gas station and she's screaming and crying and going crazy after being up for two or three days and we kicked she kicked out uh mike park from the band when we got to the show because yeah, I mean, it was it was a perfect storm like waiting to happen i mean mike wasn't traveling with skank and pickle anymore i mean he was flying to shows and the rest of us were driving and so there's nothing that's going to build up a wedge more than like this elitist you know you're not part of us anymore because you're just flying everywhere you're not in the trenches with us anymore you know in Mike's defense, I think he was getting, um, I think driving long stretches were making, were giving him anxiety attacks or something. And No, dude, dude I don't, I mean, I don't hold any, uh, I mean, if I had the possibility to fly to those shows, I would have too. Yeah. I, but I didn't, so I couldn't. Um, but, uh, but I mean, they have such, you know, those guys, they had so much history. I mean, I was only in it for like a year, you know, I mean, they had been together for what, at that point, like 12, 13, 14 years. I mean. It's uh, that's tough. 
I mean, animosities build up over time, and then all of a sudden you're locked to these people. You know, yeah. this is your life, and if you start not to like them, what are you going to do? Kick rocks because you got this thing that's making all this money. You know, but mental health starts to go down, and then drug addiction starts to happen, and then oi. So it's funny. I think I told you this before already, but I'll just insert this story in this episode. Um, that the weekend you're talking about was a, some Santa Barbara shows, right? Yeah, it was a it was a huge uh, festival. Yeah, and. LA area. So no effects played. I remember that Mike or somebody was like, Hey, like weeks before that, he's like, Hey, you want to, you want to come with us on this tour? You can be roadie. I had been roadie one time and that was on the, uh, tour, the, the tour that we talked about. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. You know, were you there that day that she freaked out at the gas station? I was completely forgotten about. <laughs> I was just, I was just like <laughs> at home waiting to be picked up. Oh, I'm sorry. No, well, I, <laughs> it was for the best in, in, uh, you know, after the weekend, hearing what happened, I was like, oh, okay, I get why they weren't thinking about me. <laughs> there was a right. whole lot of stuff happening, nothing to do with me. But that that's this funny, weird little like side story about that whole thing. Yeah, it was a, it was a real rough time. And then once Mike was out of the band, you know, then everything got crazy because then they're dealing with Dill Records, which had become like Mike had turned it into something pretty great, right? Yeah. But then it was like, well, Okay, Mike Park is not going to be part of Dill Records anymore. You know this, and so that changed things too. You know, so then all of a sudden we're being led by drug addicts. You know, and I mean by drug, I'm talking about meth. I mean not like you know people smoking weed. Who gives a shit? You know, but like you can't run the show when you're on meth. It's just impossible because it's just ridiculous. You know, I mean like the insanity. You know, you think you're always right about everything and. you know money was flowing it's like that's a bad recipe yeah and mike you know dill records was owned by skank and pickle but mike ran dill record i know yeah yeah but i'm saying he was out once yeah he got kicked out of the band and then he started asian man records and he took you know and like several of the records because he he was behind right so he's like those are my records and then even some of the ones where it was band efforts like i think me 330 he's like you want to come with me and they're like yeah of course we do. <laughs> Couldn't stay with Dill at that point. I mean, I was just when when that shit happened, I was like, "Oh, Dill's Dill's gonna fail," because yeah. they're paying people like fucking salary. I'm like, "You're there's no way this can be continued the way you guys are managing it," you know. But watching failure is uh, has been a great uh, teacher for me. So after you leave, um, how quickly does Captured by Robots happen? Or had you already st- thought of the, this idea? I mean, because you were doing like Geese Fantastique, so it wasn't a huge leap forward in a way. Yeah, well, I kind of just decided to start it up um, at, well, after, you know, I was out of Pickle. I mean, I think, I don't remember if I was going to ditch Chuck after Pickle or not. Um, I mean, that would make a perfect sense, you know, but uh, I just, uh, I think I just kept going with it at that point. Like, I, I think I took, I don't know what it was. I to make Capture by Robots, I took about a year off uh-huh. after Pickle was done, and I spent that time making the robots better. And um, uh, what was it? Yeah, making the robots better, and and then making Drumbot basically. So I saw I saw I saw Capture by Robots pretty early. I actually was living in Colorado for like this short period of time, and you came through Colorado, and you had Guitarbot, um, and you had like a drum. The the first drum bot, like you played some of the pedals, so it wasn't fully automated. No, it wasn't automated at all. I played everything via bicycle brake cables 
um, with housings from pedals that I kicked backwards with my heels on when I was standing up. Yeah. And I played this like chest plate thing with a keyboard and a guitar bot controller and uh, some, and then a microphone was on it too. Um, so it was entirely physical. There was no computers involved at all. So as, as impressive as like the later Capture by Robots was in terms of robotics, I was like completely blown away that you were able to like basically be a one man band with the technical aspects of your playing. Like, oh my God, how's he playing drums and doing all this stuff at the same time? Well, if there's a will, there's a way, you know, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I, I will say that I think I'm the only one man band performer who who's who I've seen who's done this kind of thing standing yeah. up because I see a lot of people like today still and they're always sitting down and they have a pedal board that they're playing drums with, you know, but they're always sitting and I didn't want to sit. So I just figured out a way to do it with the heels. It really played into the whole um, storyline of you being tortured by the robots though well yeah it was like this like like tetsuo the iron man guy you know like just wrapped up in all these cables and everything i mean it was awful yeah and it killed me physically it killed me like um because i had the microphone attached to the the chest plate that i was playing i'd have to put my head forward to sing kind of craning my neck and that would cause pinched nerves in my neck and so i would occasionally just have to stay in bed for three or four days with a pinched nerve. <laughs> it was awful. And that's when I decided to kind of um, take some time off and redo everything to be, you know, uh, computer sequence controlled at that point. Yeah. Okay. Well, so wait, I want to get clarification on a couple things just to back up a little bit. I saw, I think the second to last pickle show with Mike Park at San Jose state. Okay. Okay. Do you, do you remember that night you guys played with San Jose Tycho drumming? I don't remember. No, I don't remember that. I mean, I remember playing a lot of shows, but I don't sure. necessarily remember that. Okay. And then I just wanted to ask about the, the stand-up bass. You had like a, like a stick tied to it with like a shoelace or something. <laughs> and you would yeah, bang but... on it. What was that? Okay. It's um, so the bass I was playing was called an Ampeg baby bass. Okay. They're the, the salsa Cuba style players just love it because it's like they use that in a lot of recording. Right. Mm-hmm. But originally, those things had an aluminum bridge, like this aluminum shell of a bridge, which which then rested on two transducer-style pickups, right? That sound sucked. So what I did was I put a wood bridge on there, and then I put a uh, magnetic pickup attached to that wood bridge, so you get like a modern electric kind of a sound out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the the bass had always had this metal steel bridge protector that was over the aluminum bridge that was originally there, right? Mm-hmm. But I found uh, that if you ran distortion through the pickup and then I took this drumstick and I smashed on that metal bar that was over the bridge, it created this crazy sound. It was like all the notes rang at once, but it just created this like thunderous sound. And so it was just something I learned. And I was like, and then I could also do, um, if you want kind of a slappy kind of a bass sound, you can actually hit the bass string with a drumstick. Mm. And you can get like a, almost like a, like a thumbing sound, you know? Yeah, I remember. It's weird. I hadn't thought of, I forgot that you did that, but yeah, that's right. I remember the drumstick. And it's, and it's really fun to do and it's weird and awesome. And so why not? You know, it's like, it gives you kind of an overdriven sound and it really, it's percussive. So yeah, it seemed like a, a fun thing to mess with. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember watching you play at those shows and just, I had this mental image of you just kind of you know, banging, banging away on this thing, but also like kind of leaping in the air and like using 
the base the base itself almost as a way to like lift yourself off the ground so you're just kind of up in the air like looking like electrified see it's weird because i don't i don't know any of that because i when, when i perform i go into like this thing like a I don't know. A lot of artists, I mean, I imagine a lot of artists do this. And for me, it's still to this day, you know, you become somebody else. You get, you get, um, possessed sure. by the, uh, by the demon. And I don't know what it is, but it's always been with me. And when I get on stage, it's just like, you become something different and you don't know what you're doing. You looked unhinged. It was great. Good. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> if, if I look unhinged on stage, that means I'm doing the job. Yeah. Okay. And then, I saw Pickle one time without Mike. You weren't playing bass then? No, I played bass with for, for them after Mike was out, but um for how long? Uh for the rest of the band's life. Okay, how much how much longer did you guys last? I don't know. Not long. The last show was Cloying Court though, I know that. Yeah, cuz uh um I told them that that was going to be my last show and nobody thanked me. We just did the show. And I was like, "You dicks like <laughs> i've played with you for a fucking year and this is the thanks i get like no like thanks for playing with us for a year fuck you i was pissed off but you know whatever it was it was my time with them was done and i knew it so it didn't matter none of that matters yeah i i saw you guys play at berkeley square and i just remember it feeling real oh berkeley's what oh was it that that um on uh university yeah Oh, I love that place. Every time I drive by there, I'm so sad to see that it's not that. Yeah, it's like a it's like a language immersion preschool or something now. Yeah. It's oh, what a what a wonderful place that was. It was so grimy and yeah. shitty and awesome. Yeah. I've seen so many good shows there. I love that place too. Oh, yeah. It's a great spot. Wonderful spot. So it was weird. I never saw post Mike Park's Skank and Pickles. So it was weird. Adam, it was so weird. It was like seeing of this giant, powerful robot with no head, like just lumbering around the stage, and like it has all this potential, but just no direction is what it felt like. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. But that's you know that that's pretty much how it felt to me too. You know, it it was um that was when the drugs increased to really bad levels. I think. Yeah. Um, and it seemed like everybody was just trying to. Uh, to pretend that it was normal. Sure. You know? And I think we all knew it wasn't. And the it, the dynamic wasn't the same, but it was just living off the... Um, uh, how would I explain it? Um, it's like, you know, if you go to see Fog Hat today, it's not going to be the Fog Hat that played in 1970. Yeah. You know? It's going to be something totally different. And that's pretty much what it had become at that point. It was not Skank and Pickle. I mean, frankly... As far as I'm concerned, like when probably when Ian joined the band was the beginning of the end for Skank and Pickle. And then when I joined the band, it was not Skank and Pickle anymore. It was something different, you know, because it was like Mike Mattingly and the original lineup was Skank and Pickle to me. Yeah, but I mean, I feel like they leaned into the change, the post Mattingly change. And I personally liked I mean, there was Mattingly was a showman and he yeah. put on a show, but they leaned into like we're a different band now. And they sort of embraced it. Well, that's what I mean. They're a different, they're a different band. And like when it, you know, and, and bands evolve and that's, that's cool. It's just, I think like the success that they got was more from that Mattingly era than anything they did after him. That's what it seems to me. But 
but what do I know? I mean, they got pretty big though um, during Ian's run. I say. Well, yeah, but but here's the question: like, what did they really? What kind of songs did they really write during that time? You know, that that helped them do it. I mean, sure, they did the the. Um, uh, I I don't. I mean, I don't really know about a lot of the songs that they did during that time, but they did the whole cover album and all that stuff. I mean, that's you know, is that a good thing? I don't know. The sing along <laughs> with Skank and Pickle, though that was the um, that was the Ian era, that record, yeah. Whenever I think of Skank and Pickle, that Mattingly era is what I think of, you know, because it's, and I think a lot of their success was just from having the sound that they had, and then that wave was getting really big, and so it was like this was, that was the band, and you know, the, and I think more people listened to those early records than the than the later records. Yeah, but for me, I mean, I I was a little bit younger. I only saw the band once with Ian. I never saw the band with Mattingly and I saw the band mostly with you. Okay. And your sound and the way you played definitely informed a lot of how I felt about the band. Cause I gravitated towards way, way heavier music. Oh, okay. And so like you doing the stuff like banging with the drumstick on your bass, like, and it being distorted and loud and crazy that really appealed to me. Oh, well, cool. So, That's great. so, I mean, I think there's value to all different eras of the band. Yeah. I just, when I think of Skank and Pickle, basically, um, you know, when I think of their success and everything, I think the biggest thing of their success was that, was the kind of wacky Mattingly era, you know, because you could see a difference in response to that, you know, it's like everybody's skanking in the crowd, you know, when you're doing the, you know, Larry Bird song, you know, it's like, <laughs> and the um, girl named Spike song, you know, it's like, that's, that's, I mean, because I was watching the crowds during all these things. And when we did those songs, those were the ones that got the response. And I think those are the songs that got people hooked. But, uh, but thank you for saying In Defense of Ska, we'll return in a moment. So the first time I saw Capture by Robots was at the uh, Gaslighter Theater in San Jose. I bought, I bought the cassette tape. <laughs> which I fucking love. And I played so much. I want to ask a little bit about the recording of that tape. Did you record it all live? Um, no, I recorded it. Uh, piece by piece. Well, no, I guess I did record it live. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I think this guy, he was called Tony the WAP. I don't know why, but that, <laughs> that's what he called himself. And um, he was a hilarious dude. And I went to his studio and we, I just, hammered it all out and uh yeah it was uh um yeah i think yeah i think because back then i had to right and then there was all the interstitial talking between you and the robots oh yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah a bunch of jerks (laughs) and and you would you would do that live too where you would you had like a switch so you could go between them Basically. Well, I don't know about that. Robots talk shit. That's all I know. <laughs> and uh, we still do that. I mean, robots still talk shit. Okay. Maybe not as much, but they. Yeah, they don't like you. They don't like me. Your no. gut, your gut, <laughs> your guts are no longer hanging out anymore, though, right? <laughs> or your 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 intestines are no longer hanging out. No, I had some surgery to get those things put in. And got some of them removed. So now it's basically just um, uh, rags and chains and uh, mask, of course. Yeah. Know. So, I mean, seeing you play at the at that theater, I remember walking in, like, probably first song, and just seeing that on stage. Oh, it's got to be like, what the fuck? It was unbelievable. It was the most 
mind-blowing thing to walk because I, w- I went to go see the siren six they were the other other band on the show and they're like a very like just mod ska band like whatever so i'm expecting just a normal show and then i just walk in there's this guy who looks like i mean you look like in pain like a bondage man yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're you know the, the mask with the eyes coming out of yeah. the head and these menacing <laughs> robots kind of leering behind you and then realizing you know, oh, he's doing all of this live. I didn't even realize you were the same person from Skank and Pickle at this point. I was just Oh yeah. Well that's how I got a lot of shows when I first started. It was like I realized that uh Skank and Pickle would be a great way to get shows, you know, where I'm not just gonna be an, an average, you know, dickhead trying to get shows. I could say, Oh, I was the bass player from Skank and Pickle and they'll give you a little bit more of a listen. Yeah. You know? And they'll be like, Yeah, okay, sure. You know, you got some uh heritage you know so so bring it on what a transition oh god it's, not, <laughs> it's like what a transition. usually it's like oh i used to be in this band and here's my new band and we're like sort of similar <laughs> well i think the, the the two things that got me getting shows for touring because i started touring pretty quick with uh capture by robots uh was a i was from skank pickle but b it's fucking robots like i remember the dude from uh slipknot uh his uh the drummer he was running a club in des moines and i remember like talking to him and being like hey i you know i want to do this thing and he's like and it's robots right i'm like yeah it's robots he's like okay if you show up and there's no robots you're not playing and i'm like don't worry there's robots (laughs) i remember that club has flames painted on the wall yeah they're still around i think i actually i'm playing des moines on this next tour i don't know if it's the same spot but it probably is because it's like the only spot in Des Moines. Yeah. None of those songs from that tape still get played live, right? No, no. That's, that's, a, that's a different era. Yeah. But I got to say, like the Capture by Robot theme song, basically. Oh, yeah. So good. And then, <laughs> and then I think the song that opened side two of the tape was just called Friends, I think. And it was this real like sing-songy, catchy song. Oh, that's, that's a song from a... Um... Yeah, we're friends forever. Yeah. Sharing, right? Yeah. <laughs> you are my friend. Oh, wait. Maybe that's not the same song. Okay, different one, maybe. Uh, yeah. You're been, friend, well, let's see. You're bringing it. And then everything would just come in. <laughs> it would be this kind of descending. You know, you know what a huge influence on me was back when, um, in that era, mm-hmm. was uh, Hickey. Oh, okay. Do you know Hickey? Yeah. They were amazing. And they they did a lot of real sing-songy stuff, and I loved it because it was, you couldn't call it pop punk because it wasn't pop necessarily, but there was a melody to it. But then they came across with such overwhelming force when the song would break, you know, the breakdown would happen, and it would just be like this wall of just crushing something, you yeah. know? Um and so that influenced me. And so, yeah, that was, that was uh, huge for me. You know, that feeling of, of going from quiet to huge crushingness. Right. And so yeah. so the, in the early years of Capture by Robots, you got a fair amount of publicity. And um, you would also frame those interviews or pieces within the concept of the band. Like you were actually captured by robots i am captured by robots i don't care what (laughs) you fuckers say i have been captured by robots since like 97 yep 
And I remember, uh, was it like something like Discovery? Yeah, I was on. I was on a bunch of stupid shows back then. You know, they were they were dying for content, and so I wrote them, and I was like, "Hey, I've been captured by robots. I have this robot band and stuff. You know, they make me do horrible things." And they were like, <laughs> "They were like, when are you available?" <laughs> but see, I just remember like these. You'd be you'd be interviewed and be like, "Oh my god, these robots!" Like you'd be so so earnest. They're they hate me. And I'm still like that. If if you ask me about all the robots <laughs> think about me, I'll tell you the exact same fucking thing because I believe it, it's true. <laughs> Till my dying day, I hate my fucking guts. And the other thing about those segments too, they I, they were usually like, "Is this? Is he really? <laughs> we don't know. You're gonna have to go to the show and find out, or something like yeah, that." Yeah, on Discovery Channel, I was on this Beyond Bizarre show with this crazy yeah, old what... actor, English actor dude, and then um, <laughs> and I was on like a local newscast, and then I was on uh, uh, oh god, what was that called? It was on the. Not the WB, but it was like something like that. Um, uh, and that was a show called like, it wasn't called Stranger Things. It was called like Strange Universe or something like that. You know? So, okay. Yeah, I shopped it around early on. I mean, anything to get some press, you know, like at that point. Yeah. So, and I mean, if I, if I cared enough now, I'd probably do it more. But, you know, it's, I don't really care. Anymore. I think you told me once that like sometime in the more recent years that you've been um, that America's Got Talent has reached out to you multiple times. Oh man, they fucking bug me all the time. I have no desire, like, I have no more desire for success or whatever that means. I have no more desire for, um, for anything except to just be myself. And that has really made me a lot more comfortable as an artist. And I do things the way I want now. I got rid of my Spotify because I think Spotify is a bunch of fucking thieves. And, you know, um, nobody you know even people who like got rid of them for a while because of controversies then they just go back to them like mm -hmm. bitches like fuck you you know like um i don't agree with the whole model of streaming and you know bands don't get paid or get paid for shit like fuck you so i'm not on it because fuck them not that not that they care but you know i care so um i i did uh what really kind of changed my view of that whole thing of trying to get exposure i did a uh uh, what's that? What's that called? When you uh, have a first show that hasn't, that's not going to be aired. Um, pilot. Pilot. I did a pilot in L.A. It was for the show called something like it. It was, it was a show that ended up becoming Thirty Seconds to Fame or something like that with like Chris Rock's like not very uh, good brother. Like I don't know his name, <laughs> but he yeah. was the host and he was really not very good at what he did. Like you got on stage and did your fucking shit and they like, and people are supposedly able to vote for you like on stage. I didn't know that they brought me down there specifically to humiliate me in front of this big crowd of people. So I go down there and I set up and I'm doing all this stuff and they're like, okay, you know, you're up. So I, I get up and get everything set up on stage and ready to go do my song. And then I get fucking gonged, you know, like, like, uh, it's like, like a, it was like a gong show, you know, where you get pulled off or whatever, but they thought it would be fucking funny since I have robots to rig the stage, to blow a bunch of smoke up. Like the robots got set on fire or they broke or some shit. And I was so humiliated. I was like, Oh, like, cause I heard, cause the audience was supposed to judge you. And I talked to people who production people, they're like, your score kept going up. But then all of a sudden that smoke came up. So I got gonged off. I was so fucking mad. I was just furious. 
and I left. I was like, fuck you. And they were like, oh, we were going to give you money. I was like, I don't want your fucking money. Fuck you. And uh, yeah, that was, that was the, about the time when I decided to just say, screw the industry, screw everybody. Fuck all of you. I'm going to do what I do. And I'm only going to care about what I think. Um, I have no desire. Like, I'll do just fine on my own, you know, without any of your help. And so that's what I've, and ever since then, that's what I've done. And it's been great. So America's Got Talent, you're assuming probably correctly that they were after a similar kind of experience. Like, oh, this is bad. You know, it was just weird because I bet you, like, no one in their right mind watches Captured by Robots and goes, this is bad. I mean, maybe so. I do. <laughs> <laughs> but it's so elaborate and so amazing. Even if you don't like the music, it's like, wow. I guess what I don't want to be, I don't want to have happen to me is just to be reduced to some little tiny, um, you know what it is more than anything? I want it to be cultish. I don't want to be like, I don't want to have Karens watching me. I don't want to have like, I don't want to um, be controlled by the money that these people do. You know, I don't want any of that. I like, I see so many bands that um, feel like they're forced into doing things. I don't want endorsements. I keep like the whore fucking bands that take endorsements for symbols and every fucking thing they put out as a, has an advertisement on it. Fuck you. Have some self-respect. Buy your own fucking symbols. So what if they're expensive? You know, it's like the whole idea of being controlled by corporate overlords just in, enrages me. And so many bands are just willing to just sell themselves for nothing. And so, yeah. So that's why I'm not successful. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't care. Yeah. I mean, you know, what is success? You can define it yourself. Success to me is doing what you want to do and nobody can tell you otherwise, you know, and, 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 um, I don't know. And, and being true to art and being true to yourself, you know, like I just, yeah. I just, um, every time I see a flyer and there's a bunch of endorsements on there from Fender and all, I'm just like, fuck you. Like it just, it didn't, it, it makes me so mad. Like that means nothing. So captured by robots over the years, like I feel like every year or every two years is like a new robot added to the band. Used to be, yeah. Yeah, that used to be. And then I remember seeing you in somewhere around 2012 or 2013. I mean, I think I'd been a few years and I was at the, the Blank Club in San Jose and there's like a dozen robots at this point. There's like a horn section. There's like there's the, the the bear who plays tambourine, and then the bear has a kid who... They're apes, okay? They're apes. apes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> apes. I apologize. <laughs> that was the ape that hath no name and the son of the ape that hath no name. Okay, well, I was right about the son part. Okay, and okay, so not only was there just an amazing amount of robots... It's like a robot thrift store. Yeah, the, the bits, the bits got not only more absurd, but started to feel like you were... Um, like attacking the audience a little bit <laughs> like like i remember you had this thing you did where you had like a, a, bi a unicycle bicycle and you took a volunteer and you'd ram it into this person oh no that was the dildo unicorn the dildo unicorn <laughs> what, tell me about the dildo unicorn that was the trip and balls tour that we did yeah the trip and ball that's yes, correct yes. yeah because and and the whole thing was like it was just all about being like for people tripping on acid to see because it's like I wanted to go as far into what the fuck as I could go. And so I did. And uh I made a a uh like I got one of those plastic horses that you know the kids ride, you know, like with the springs. 
Mm-hmm. You know, like it's like a toy. Um, so I found one on the street. So I brought it home and mounted it into a scooter. And so, um, and then I was like, this horse is cool, but what else could I do? I was like, oh my God, I'm going to make it a dildo unicorn. And so I put a dildo for its horn, its unicorn, unicorn horn, you know? Um, and I made them all glittery and put Christmas lights on them. And to start the show, I came in playing trombone while riding this scooter just because it was fucking crazy, you know, playing like just, it just seemed like if someone was tripping and all of a sudden this guy comes in riding this dildo unicorn playing trombone, <laughs> wearing his mask and these, this like gut suit he's wearing, it's like, what the fuck is happening? And so, um, and people did trip. And the, I talked to him afterwards. This girl's like, I'm tripping so hard right now. I was like, did you have, a, was it good tonight? She was like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so at one point we, yeah, at, there was a, a countdown in the show where I rammed someone with the dildo unicorn and they're on stage bending over, like leaning over the stage basically. And I came rolling up in, this, in the <laughs> crowd and just, you ram them. And that's when the song starts. Yes. Yeah, so I remember I enjoyed the show. It was very good. But I remember asking, I remember wondering to myself, is Jay, um, is he, is he kind of, is he kind of attacking the audience a little bit? Is he, is there a little bit you of an always attack the edge? audience? That's great. But, but I mean, it's a little bit of an aggro edge. I mean, you did scale down after that. It wasn't long after you, you sort of stopped and then reformatted to a three piece. Yeah. Well, that was, that was like, that was the first tour that I did where I was feeling, um, there was a, a period where I kind of fell into doing covers for a while, which was very successful for me, but very un successful for my brain because i you know i couldn't i i I liked doing it but then i realized that i was short selling myself as an artist you know like just it's you know if you're if you're an artist and you're actually doing covers like you're playing yourself you know because none of those songs are yours you're just you're just people aren't don't like you they like the song right you know yeah which you have nothing to do with and so um i tried to go back to doing originals after that and then just the band started feeling tired for me at that point and crowds weren't coming as much. My crowd kind of aged out of what I was doing. Um, and I, I was doing so well for a couple of years there that I didn't think to try to get more crowd or to try to, you know, get younger people to be involved in it, you know? And so it started kind of falling on itself and failing. And, uh, and I was not happy. I wasn't happy. Even when it was doing successful, I wasn't happy because I felt like I was locked into this fucking thing that I was growing tired of, you know? Um, and so, cause all the music I was listening to at that point was super heavy, like brutal, you know, burning witch kind of shit, you know, just awful. Um, and that's really what I wanted to do, but I was like, no one is going to want to listen to this shit. Um, so I felt like I was stuck in this world of doing this kind of middle of the road captured by robot stuff. Um, and then, so yeah, that tour happened. It wasn't a great success. I ended up doing another tour where then I was like, okay, I'm going to get rid of the mask and rid of the costume. It's just going to be me and guitar bot and drum bot. And I'm going to play guitar and we're just going to be a normal band. Right. And I did the tour with that and that didn't feel right because it felt like I was missing any kind of a zazz that I could have, you know, it, it missed, there was something missing. Um, and then I was doing that for a while. And then towards the end of that, I just, one show, I just took a dive. I just, I was like, I was not happy. I was having a miserable time. And uh, I pretended like I got dizzy and passed out just because like, I, I was like, I can't spend one more minute on this stage doing this. And so I, uh, the next day I quit the band. I was like, that's it. I'm done. Because I've been trying for so long to make something that would make me satisfied. And it 
just nothing worked. And so I decided that I was going to be done. And uh, then it took me, you know, a good year and a half to two years to decide what I was going to do next. And at first I was thinking about just getting a job and doing something, but um, I realized I really did want to do the band. I just wanted to do it my way, which wasn't the way it was. So I came up with the idea of just, I wanted to, no mask, chains are fine. I want to play brutal fucking music, like what I listen to. And so, and I was like, I don't give a shit if it's popular. I'm just going to do it and fuck it. Here we go. And so I did it. And man, it made me as happy as I could be. The idea that you just do like grindcore or just heavy music and your band is you and robots. That's to me, that's like weirder than the entire career of uh, Captured by Robots leading up to this point. Like, but it's but it makes sense because you've done you've made robots and worked with robots for so long. It's second nature to you. Well, why is it why is it weird? Because because <laughs> you're just like I I I play with robots like <laughs> so casual. So you're saying having a uh, having it be grindcore metal is weirder than having it be like middle of the road rock. Having it be like having like removing the gimmick aspect or the the theatrical aspect and just be like yeah I just. I just like to rock out with robots. Well, I didn't remove it. I mean, actually, this this tour that I'm doing right now is probably one of the more theatrical ones I've done. I mean, it's like, we got a corpse, we got skeletons, we got fire, we got a fucking <laughs> casket. Jesus. <laughs> I would think that the heavy, I mean, I'm sure there was a transition for your audience, but I would think that the, the crowd that likes that kind of music would like robots. It seems like they do. I mean, I've been, you know, the last... Uh, the shows that I've done, I mean, I get I get pits going. I mean, it's like it's there. I put us up against any human grindcore or metal band at this point. Like, we're just as powerful. Matter of fact, yeah, I would put Drumbot up against any human drummer for speed. She can play faster than anybody. Yeah, I don't care if you're talking about the fastest drummer in the world. She plays faster. Yeah, you do these videos sometimes of the blast beats. Yeah, they're fucking nuts. They are insane. And it's taken a long time to figure that shit out to get him to play that well. Guitarbot is going to be—he's a little harder to get perfect, but I've been working on it and trying some new things soon. To one thing that we've done with Guitarbot is um, he now has double mutes on his uh, on guitar and bass, so he can do really good, gong 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 gong, like fucking beautiful. And we've—I've really been getting into a lot more um, hardcore lately, like. Uh, uh not not metalcore but but more like um in disgust kind of uh not necessarily tsunami even though i like them but not not really like that just just heavy chunky like just awesomeness like there's something i really like about um about that uh and so that's that's kind of the direction we've been headed lately there's going to be more breakdowns and capture robots yeah yeah i mean there's always been a good amount but um yeah i'm just trying to like whatever type of music i'm listening to i just try to incorporate it into it um and uh yeah i've been working on my voice a lot because i have like the worst voice for grindcore like because i've never i have like 30 years of bad habits in my vocals and so i keep working on doing this stuff but then when i become that you know when i become possessed by the 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 show demons when i get on stage i forget a lot of that stuff because my body just the adrenaline and everything just makes me forget all my techniques Mm -hmm. that i have developed so i um 
but I'm trying. I, I keep, you know, working on stuff. I mean, I came into a couple breakthroughs the other day for false cord shit. So one of these days I'm going to make it work. It's just I, <laughs> one of these days we won't suck as bad. But <laughs> what, what do you do to maintain your voice on tour so that you don't blow it out like three shows in? Um, well, I mean, I do a lot of times. I mean, because the biggest problem for me is that for every tour since I've been started, I get sick. Yeah every tour and so i'm hoping the mask thing is going to really save me from getting sick mm-hmm. on this tour um um and so that thrashes my voice because my that deviated septum causes sinus infections which then draining down constantly um is real drag you know right so um but i've learned a few things about taking care of myself like eating better like getting enough protein so i'm not exhausted because that's one thing i didn't know at all and so like one tour I decided to become a vegetarian partway through and man, I dropped like 20 pounds and got like so sick by the end. It was horrible. Cause I just wasn't eating enough protein. So I was like dying. But, but besides that, I mean, you know, I just, uh, Jameson, you know, sipping Jameson helps. Uh, um, there's some tricks. If you're really snotty in your throat, one thing you can do, which not many people know about is you can gargle with black tea and honey and it will actually strip off a lot of the mucus that you have on your vocal cords so they can resonate again. Because mm. if, if, you, if you have a lot of mucus on your cords, you can't do anything. Like, they just won't resonate. But, um, but yeah, gargling black tea with honey right before a show can really loosen those things up to go. Thank you so much for listening to In Defense of Ska. If you've enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe to the podcast wherever you normally stream or download episodes. If you haven't already, grab a copy of my book, In Defense of Ska, available at clashbooks.com. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. It's at In Defense of Ska. And please consider joining our Patreon at patreon.com backslash In Defense of Ska. You will get monthly bonus episodes extended interviews and commentary per episode, and access to the Indefensive Ska Discord. Indefensive Ska would not be possible without the great team that tirelessly works on it every week. So you should go check out their other projects as well. Co-host Adam Davis has an amazing band called Omnigon. Give them a follow on Instagram and Twitter. It's simply at Omnigon. And our editor, Chris Reeves, has a phenomenal record label and podcast called Ska Punk International. For more information, go to skapunkinternational.com. And if you've ever enjoyed one of the highly specific in defense of ska memes floating around the interwebs, it was likely the work of the bands I like only charge $18. Find them on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And on that note, we leave you by saying ska now more than ever.